0: Are you a grown-ass man or woman? Do you feel as though you're responsible enough to make decisions around your own personal well-being and or that of your family? You see, obesity and alcoholism are not my personal preferred models of existence, but nonetheless, still the dominant paradigm in our society. Meanwhile, we're villainizing peaceful, thoughtful people with intention to understand themselves at a deeper level by utilizing natural supplements which have been used for thousands of years and have been considered sacred in most cultures with access to them. So I find it interesting that we as a society have acquiesced to permitting the perpetuation of the puritanical corporate driven perspective on the use of completely natural plants that come from God's mother freaking dirt and are repeatedly proven to progress our physical and or mental well-being. So that's kind of, sort of, some of the stuff that we chatted about today with Mr. Rick Doblin. This is the line Podcast, and I am your host, Aaron Alexander. Super, super fun conversation. I greatly appreciate Rick Doblin's time. He is the president, founder of MAPS Institute, which stands for Multiple Disciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. And we had a fantastic chat. We got into everything from what the heck a bad trip is in the first place and how to guide yourself or others through that. Uh, We got into the utilization of MDMA for war vets, cops, various different folks that have been getting messed up and need some assistance. Uh, We also got into the value of movement and integrating our minds, our bodies, and our emotional selves, and how we can utilize movement work in these MDMA,
1: marijuana, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy sessions. Psychedelics are for the study of the mind, what the microscope is for the study of biology, and the telescope is for the study of astronomy. Our drug policy, our whole system of prohibition, is kind of made... The idea, the fundamental mistake, that there's good drugs and bad drugs, and these bad drugs, there's no good uses for them. They're, they're always bad, they're always illegal, and it ignores the fact that, that it's about the relationship. And so that's where I think we need to revamp our whole social drug policy and focus on relationships and also look at human rights. And when we talk about this idea of um, psychedelics, being used for thousands of years for religious purposes, for healing purposes, that's a fundamental human right to to be able to explore our consciousness in different ways. The, The difficult stuff coming up, it isn't what makes it a bad trip. It's what makes it a difficult trip. And then it's the resistance to that that makes it a bad trip.
0: Really, really valuable stuff. And uh, I hope to be assisting with the MAPS Institute in some, some movement work with integrating emotional, physical selves. I think that'd be fantastic. So I really want us to just take an hour here and kind of strip away any biases that we may have formulated over the years. Ever since we had the potentially not quite the best role model in the world coming into our classroom as a young kid, but we don't know the difference because we're little children and they're standing up there and they're bigger than us and they're, they have a deeper voice than us, and they tell us... Drugs are bad, period. You can trust me because uh, I'm up here and I got a microphone and I'm talking to you. You know, and maybe, maybe it's because you are a product of a culture that has been perpetuating broken ideas in the realm of healthcare for the last 50 years. Maybe. That has something to do with it. So I personally, in my path, I prefer to follow and trust folks that they are demonstrating that they're winning, they're doing well, they're healthy, they're strong, they're smart, they're grounded, they're engaged, they're stoked to be alive. Those are the people that have been my best teachers. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. And uh, so that is what I would like us to get more excited about. Not necessarily trusting something just because it's what you've been told since you were four, but really getting into the present moment of what is the best thing for me right now. So, hope that wasn't too ranty for y'all. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N. On there you will find the blog, you'll find hundreds of free videos on self care and functional movement, you will find the self care kit, just foam roller, a couple bands, a couple balls, uh, door anchor, utilize all that stuff to keep your tissue layers sliding all beautifully and sexily like, and uh, you can pack that thing underneath the car seat in your vehicle, underneath the couch in the living room, whatever you do, you can put it in your bum if you want, I have no judgment, it's up to you. Um, What else, what else, what else? Utilize the Amazon portal on the website, on the uh, podcast page, blog page, on the right side, bar, and... I will be in London uh, speaking slash doing some workshops at Health Unplugged October 31st to November 2nd I think is the dates for that thing and then I'll be cruising around London I've got some interviews out there and uh, I'm going to bring a video camera is the plan. Uh, We'll see if I I bring the video camera or not. It's up in the air. Uh, Maybe give me some feedback if if you'd be into this. And uh, so documenting movers around Africa, around Europe uh, and just really exploring exploring people that have tapped into this mind-body connection and uh, doing interviews with them, doing video of maybe if go and, and find some African tribesmen and African dance and whatever. I'll see what happens when I get down there and see what, what makes sense to be documenting. That is a potential. And then uh, I got another workshop coming up in Costa Rica that uh, will be on my arrival back to the United States in April. Costa Rica workshop is uh, end of April. I'll give you more details as that time gets closer. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Keep it in mind if you're into going to Costa Rica and hanging out for a week. Um, I think, I think, think, think. That might be all. Here
1: we go. Mr. Rick Stablin.
0: Mr.
1: Online podcast. Uh, are you going to do this as a video or as um, just audio?
0: Uh, so, as far as the podcast goes, it's obviously just audio. But I, I keep the videos in case okay. there's my bonds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah, maybe with the bonds. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, but yeah. So we keep the video in case, but um, yeah. If at any point you want to utilize the bond, I, I think that'd be fantastic and hilarious. Um, but yeah. So is that today? Late before I go to temple, I need it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm on board with that. And so that's that's kind of. So is my that... rabbi, by the way. I, I think more rabbis should be smoking weed. I think that's. I think that's like.
1: <laughs> no, no, he doesn't smoke weed, but he's okay with me smoking weed.
0: <laughs> oh, cool. I I assume. So I want. Well, I have a lot of questions. We'll get into it. We'll get into it as <laughs> right. as we go. Uh, but yeah. So there's nothing that you specifically want to touch on during our time.
1: Um. Well, I think the. Um, you know, obviously the MDMA PTSD drug development stuff. Yes. I'd like to talk about Zendo. Um. I'd like cool. to talk about our marijuana project, which I've been working on this morning. Great. Which is you know this 2.15 million dollar grant from the state of Colorado. Awesome. Awesome. Um. And, you know, other things that we're doing with MDMA for PTSD, but also end of life and autistic adults with social anxiety. Okay. And then couples therapy. We're start. We're about to start a super interesting study with um, couples therapy where one of the couple has PTSD. Awesome.
0: Well, I've been recording the whole time, so we can kind of... I, I usually just, you know, start <laughs> as it seems yeah. like it makes sense.
1: Good. But yeah, yeah
0: I want to get... I think all that... That's kind of the direction I wanted to go anyway. I wanted to start with getting an understanding of like your background for folks, your uh, background with okay. psychology, you know, and, 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 and your background with psychedelics and how they have supported you in your own journey and then how you have been working to synchronize the two. Cause I think it's something that we're missing in our reality. You know, we're missing, yeah. it's, it's like, Oh, we have this taboo around these potentially really sacred, important, powerful supplements. But there's all this fear around it. So, like, what's your background with that? How did you start to converge that?
1: Yeah. Well, um, we'll start by saying that, um, you know, I was 17 and three quarters uh, when I went off to college. And up to that point, I had pretty much had this idea that psychedelics were dangerous, right. that, you know, they could uh, hurt your chromosomes, that they could make you go crazy. Um, and, you know, I, I bought a lot of the propaganda that I grew up with. Uh, my parents don't drink; they don't smoke cigarettes, and so it was pretty much a you know rational, non-drug kind of upbringing. Um, I was the oldest of four kids, and you know, but I was very political and raised to be very interested in uh, world dynamics, and and particularly this whole uh, you know threat against the Jews, the whole Holocaust, and. You know, in combination with growing up during the Cuban Missile Crisis and all the the education about um, duck and cover in case there's a nuclear explosion from Russia, you know, duck under your desk, you'll be fine, right. kind of stuff. Right. So, um, you know, and then the Vietnam War. So it was just very um, clear to me that the psychological problems were what needed addressing more than the resource problems, like getting enough food and shelter and and water for sort of physical survival. That the physical survival was imperiled by psychological factors, yeah. that people were more like primitive than they were, you know, modern adults. So in, in a way there was, I can't remember who told this, but there was somebody was um, asked a question of, uh, you know, what did they think of American um, civilization? And they said it, w- it would be a good idea. <laughs> Right right, 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 exactly. <laughs> you know, so, um, but it was also all over the world. So, so I think what, what really happened for me was that I ended up going to a college that had um, an experimental college that was just the first class was 1965, and I started in 1971. And it was the Honors College. Now it's the Honors College of the state of Florida. And it was very much promoting um, students following their own curiosity. It had um, a nudist colony at the swimming pool, which was fantastic. It had this tradition of all-night dances under the stars till the sunrise with a large number of people doing psychedelics. And the campus police were protecting us from the real police. So it was that environment that I went to. Now, none of that, of course, was in the um, brochure for parents and students about what the college was going to be like. So I was kind of taken by surprise. But... Um, it's, it's that once I started doing psychedelics at college, particularly mescaline and LSD, um, it really woke me up in ways that helped me realize that a lot of the education I'd received had been misleading, had been overly negative, had been to justify a, a political crackdown by Nixon and others against protesters. It wasn't really about drug abuse, it was about, um, you know, people having psychedelic experiences and then having unitive experiences that uh, connected them with others, that connected them with their emotions, and then those kind of experiences had political consequences. Mm. So when I started waking up to the value of psychedelics, it was just after the massive backlash against the 60s. And so that's where I started thinking this is something that I really want to devote myself to for both political reasons and personal reasons. So it took me just a couple of months, though, to realize that I was kind of in over my head, and that these experiences that I was having with large dose psychedelics. Now, back in those back in the day, um, you know, a, a dose of LSD was around 250 micrograms, and today they average 60, 70 micrograms. So, you know, for people who are um, familiar with that, just imagine taking four hits at once or so. And you know, and it's for different kind of purposes. It wasn't so much for Um, You know, going out and playing around. It was more for eyes closed, having these spiritual experiences, lying down, being nonverbal for hours at a time as you're experiencing different things. Mm. So I I started developing these um, blockages. I wasn't really good with letting my emotions flow, and I just felt like I was scared and at the ego dissolution, and I I started resisting the experience, and that was the classic thing to make it worse. Right. So once you resist it, um, you know it, it can be difficult, but if you can process it, it can be healing. But if it's difficult and you resist it, then that's what we normally talk about as a bad trip. And you're right. stuck. And this was 1971, 72. So it was well before I knew anything about MDMA, which I didn't learn about till 1982. Yeah. So there was no... now when people get into difficult trips with LSD, sometimes we'll give MDMA to, um, in these, um, what should I say, uh, informal underground therapists do this, and uh, that softens it and helps it to be processed. So I, I didn't have any of those things available to me, but I had this intimation that there was something fundamentally healing and fundamentally evolutionary about these psychedelic experiences. And so I felt that that became more important than the intellectual work. I ended up dropping out of college for 10 years and focusing on getting grounded and tripping in little bits, getting healed from all the fear that I had, trying to build myself up to be able to have those kind of feelings, starting to have romances and love affairs. And that also helped me to feel and become um, more emotionally fluid. And it was during that period of time that I started, um, you know, from eighteen on, telling my friends that I wanted to be a psychedelic researcher and a psychedelic therapist, and they're all amused, you know, by by that. Um, didn't seem like a, a clear path to a career, <laughs> but you know, I was a draft resistor. I thought I was going to go to jail for not going to Vietnam, and I didn't think I could have a normal career anyway. So it seemed, for political and personal reasons, to be something that made sense to me, and. I'm happy to say that over all of these years, um, it still makes sense to me and it makes even more sense than it did before. And I see that um, you know, one of the things and one of the reasons I'm so glad in a way to be doing this uh, podcast with you is that I felt like the public education part is super important. And there was a way in which um, maybe 15 years ago, I started realizing that our progress was so slow. That we weren't going to be able to sort of fully mainstream psychedelics into our culture in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. That a lot of it will happen, but it's going to have to happen to. Uh, it's going to have to happen by subsequent generations. And I started worrying that people would see that the interest in psychedelics was just like the hippies. It was like the, the naive idealism of the hippies that was, you know, ultimately squashed and that would be rejected by younger generations. Right. And so I I fortunately um, ended up teaching a class in 2001 at the college that I went to, at New College. And it was after I'd gotten my PhD from Harvard for the Kennedy School of Government. And I had enough credibility that I could get uh, invited to teach this month-long workshop. And a bunch of the people were just 18, 19 years old in my class. And I found that they were very much interested in psychedelics. And that really gave me a lot of hope that, that it's um, it's not this historical sort of blip of the, the baby boomers, psychedelic generation with these fanciful but unrealistic ideas about integrating psychedelics into culture, that it's been adopted by other generations. And then I've realized how silly it was for me to even doubt it, that psychedelics have been around for thousands of years. How is it going to be that, you know... The, the baby boomers were the first generation to discover it, and then it goes away. You know, so that was kind of ridiculous. Right. Which which is good though, because what it means now is that I have a lot more patience. That uh, we don't have to accomplish it all in our generation, and that people like yourself and others are picking, seeing value here as well, yeah. and trying to communicate it to the cultures. And you know, one of the things that's um, kind of hard for me, but good is this idea of the the struggle. So I sort of carry with me, you know, the, the, the you know, maps now, I started at 1986, but it was really 71, 72 that I decided to be a psychedelic therapist and bring back psychedelic therapy. So it, it's been, you know, 40 more, 40 plus years that I've been working on it and it's less controversial now. So I think a lot of times I bring out the the controversy from my past experience, where it's not necessary, other people don't see it. I mean, we now have 23 medical marijuana states for marijuana legalization states, in the District of Columbia, more coming in the 2016 election. So, it's um, it's it's a pleasure to see that now there's more psychedelic research than at any time in the last uh, 45 years, right? And. It's also been the case that my own personal experiences with psychedelics have been instrumental in helping me to work at at MAPS. So, in, for example, in 1984 is when the DEA first tried to criminalize MDMA. It was being sold as ecstasy, but it was also being used underground as Adam, as a, a drug for therapy, and it was clear that there was going to be this uh, effort at criminalization because it was being used above ground as ecstasy and and we prepared and there was a you know DEA lawsuit that I was involved in trying to protect MDMA from being criminalized and we we sort of um, won the DEA lawsuit the judge said it should stay as a therapy drug but the head of the DEA rejected that and you know then we had to sort of do all this move through science but what I've been able to to do is in 1985 in the midst of this lawsuit with the DEA, Leo Zeff, who was the secret chief, the the first book that Max ever published was about the leader of the underground psychedelic psychotherapy movement and he worked with uh, Ann and Sasha Shulgin and he's the one that really introduced MDMA to hundreds of psychiatrists and psychotherapists and he said that he wanted to give me an experience with LSD and Ibogaine to help me sort of deal with my own inner shadow so that I wouldn't be projecting it all the time onto these DEA police types. Because if you come into this attitude that you're all good, they're all bad, it, it kind of freezes things and it's hard to find compromises or it's hard to sort of um, find those people that don't necessarily buy into the complete ideology of the organizations that they work in and that maybe they'd be willing to help in small ways. So I had this experience with um, LSD and Ibogaine uh, combination because um, the, the iboga root takes a while to take effect in the plant form and so Leo didn't want to wait three hours for the Ibogaine to take effect just sitting there so that's where he gave me the LSD too. Um, but it was extremely helpful in um, helping me integrate um, the parts of myself that I had split off, my own shadow and um, you know, a different experience I had one time was with MDMA. Um, also 1985 and I was imagining myself as the DEA looking at me and I was trying to think how do I stay safe from their eyes Right. and I, I said, one of the key things that I realized from that which also explains why we're here today doing the podcast is that I realized that the police authorities, the DEA, they're trained to look for what you're hiding from them and that if you stand up in front of them Sometimes there's a safety from that, that, that they think, hey, you know, this guy is, you know, he's, he's doing what he's talking about and, you know, they they, they, they somehow don't think that um, they need to engage with you in this underground way. that, that So I, I realized that by trying to be transparent, by trying to explain that my motives are both medicine and also ending prohibition, that that would be safety rather than um, more of a risk. Yeah. Well that, that
0: like, that's I love that you mentioned integration, you know, integration with your mind, with your emotional self, with your your physical self, which I'm curious to the degree that yeah. you get into that with folks if that is something that you do yes. you do riff on at all. Like so so during yeah. a what do you call like a, a psychedelic psychotherapy session or how, do, how yeah. what's what's the best Yeah,
1: well we we talk about MDMA assisted psychotherapy or LSD assisted psychotherapy. Yeah. And I think the key thing there is that it's the psychotherapy is, in some ways, more important than the drug. The drug is the catalyst for the psychotherapy, right. and there are parts of uh, the work that's very much body work focused. Awesome. And we will, like, I- I've studied with Stan Grof, the world's leading LSD researcher, therapist, founder of transpersonal psychology, with Abraham Maslow and others. And Stan, after psychedelics were criminalized figured out that through hyperventilation that you can produce some of the same emotional states very similar right and but it's it's you, you have to sort of generate it yourself through the hyperventilation which is difficult and it doesn't have the carrying power of you know LSD for six eight hours so a lot of times people get activated they get opened up and they get kind of stuck and so Stan's done a lot of work on body work during holotropic breath work. Cool. To help things, and, and we've seen in LSD cases and MDMA cases, uh, you know MDMA in particular really opens up the psychosomatic connection, mm. and also with with LSD that the things start hurting in the body, and if you um, treat it as a, a physical illness, you're kind of missing the point. But if you treat it as like a signpost to something deeper psychologically, a lot of times through the pain uh, or through the bodywork. Then will emerge a story.
0: Right. Yeah. That's that. And that's, you know, so when you see someone, say you see someone that with like mental retardation is like, you know, a, a really far end of the spectrum, and yeah. you see that manifest in their physical body. When you see someone depressed, you see that in their body. When you see yeah. someone a little crazy, you know, you kind of see this spastic all overness with the way that they're moving. You know, yeah. and, and, and so to be able to, Ida Rolf said, you know, we work with the body because it's what we can get our hands on, you know, and so it's a similar concept with this. It's like, let's work from all angles with this. You know, let's utilize these tools that we have from the, from the earth, mushrooms and, you know, whatever, ayahuasca, whatever yeah. it may be, as literally it's like telescopes or microscopes into ourselves to go deeper. You know, and I think that it's, it's such a beautiful thing to dance between all of these tools that we have. You know, as opposed to, to villainizing one specific, incredibly powerful set of tools and saying, Nope, all you have is traditional Western psychotherapy, you know, and all
1: you have is anxiety medication. It's like,
0: wh- Why? <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. And more and more people are, are believing that same thing. And, it's beautiful. And what you said uh, reminded me, though, of a quote from Stan Groff that was terrific, which was that um, psychedelics are for the study of the mind, what the microscope is for the study of biology and the telescope is for the study of astronomy. Exactly. But we're that afraid of a, it. <laughs> it. Yeah, it's a tool into, like dreaming into our unconscious. And we need to accept that. And the other part of this analogy of tools is uh, um, really this idea that the tool itself is not good or bad. I mean you can have a hammer and you can pound a nail or you can smash somebody in the head. Right. It's the relationship that you have with the tool that turns whether it's productive or destructive, yes. and the same way as our drug policy, our whole system of prohibition has kind of made the idea, the fundamental mistake, that there's good drugs and bad drugs, and these bad drugs, there's no good uses for them, they're, they're always bad, they're always illegal, right. and it ignores the fact that, that it's about the relationship, and so that's where I think we need to revamp our whole social drug policy and focus on relationships. And also look at human rights. And when we talk about this idea of um, psychedelics being used for thousands of years for religious purposes, for healing purposes, that's a fundamental human right to, to be able to explore our consciousness in different ways. Yeah. But, but to get back a little bit to the body therapies, sure. um, it, it turned out that in um, the early 80s, there was a bunch of people that were doing MDMA massage. It was incredible because under the influence of MDMA, people's musculature relaxes, and most people report that they are more limber, that they can stretch an inch or two more when they're under the influence of MDMA than when they're not. Right. And and how does that happen? It's, it's not exactly clear, but something about the release of the tension in the muscles, I think, is directly related to the emotional relaxation. One hundred percent. People feel. And then when you combine the MDMA with massage, where you're working with people to get deeper into where they're still holding on, where their tension is, then the stories related to these body tensions come out. And so these are people that are sort of combination, massage therapists, psychotherapists. And, And I think in the future, once we have MDMA approved as a prescription medicine by the FDA, by the European Medicines Agency, and we open it up to psychedelic clinics, that there's going to be body workers that are going to be part of the psychedelic clinics. Right. And they'll prepare people for it. Like sometimes uh, people do um, an hour or so of yoga after they've taken MDMA just to kind of loosen up and, and open up emotionally by opening up physically. Sure. I think the 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 I mean the, the classic for me, that one of the most amazing stories of my whole life ever was um, sitting with somebody who was a German doctor and um, his arm became paralyzed under the influence of MDMA and we knew that it wasn't really a nerve damage problem that there was something emotional but we didn't know what it was so we just uh, you know sat with him and encouraged him to talk about it and the more that he talked about it the more this whole story came out about he was with his mother and kids at the deathbed of his father, and the father was all on life support, and they had to decide whether to pull the life support or not, and they agreed to do it, and he was the one to do it. Mm. And what made this such an emotional conflict is he actually hated his father. He had a very difficult relationship with his father. Mm. And so he had to kind of resolve, did he kill his father? Did he do this because of him and his anger? Or And then through this multiple-hour conversation about how really his mother wanted him to do it. His siblings wanted to do it. It's what his father wanted. It was not of hatred. He could accept the fact that this had happened, the feelings started coming back to his arm. And before you know it, he wasn't paralyzed at all. But it's like things show up symbolically in the body a lot of times before we can have a clear cognition about what is really going on. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh,
0: with... MDMA specifically, I believe it down regulates the amygdala, which is the portion of the limbic brain that's responsible for fear amongst other things, but fear is what it's famous for, you know, and similar concept, the limbic system in our brain is, is deeply integrated with the tension of our musculature of our physical body. You know, so if we can knock on that door and say, Hey, bud, you've been digging a, 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 nervous rut for the last 20 years and a nervous system right you've been myelinating these layers these pathways yeah. for the last 20 years of anxiety of depression of you know i work too hard and i don't sleep enough and i've you know i'm scared of this or that or the other it's now in your physical body so to be able to step back and observe yourself we fear that we fear that because you know our power of self de- deception. That's like the, yeah. one of the biggest human traits. You know that separates us is that we can deceive ourselves. Yes, forever and, and it,
1: ever. That's <laughs> the entire reason for science. For science. For scientific methodology. Right. Is to try to get past our biases, and the way that we see the world and the way we want to see it, rather than the way it actually is. Right. So scientific methodology is precisely designed to get over those kind of Tendencies we have to ignore reality and see it the way we want it to see it, but but I am curious, just in the uh, Rolfing world, yeah, if yeah. does anybody ever do like um, marijuana before Rolfing or MDMA or ayahuasca before Rolfing? And I. Sure. I <laughs>
0: so I, honest to God, so I live in Oregon, and so here in Oregon, it is legal to smoke marijuana. Um, for the longest time, for certain people that I would recognize that they have they're, – they're in a, 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 a rut of sorts, a physical, mental, emotional rut, and they're not quite able to see what's happening. But when they come into my office, I see it. You know, I see the way that they're moving. I see it, it's, it's all integrated in their whole entire system. For folks in those situations where they're so deep in this space – I suggest marijuana, you know, and I, I suggest like, you know, I think that you should you know, smoke a little bit of weed or vaporize or whatever it is. <laughs> You know, listen to some music, be in a dark place, get all your work done, you know, be really just like completely clear at ease with the day. Don't have any, don't invite anybody over. Just spend time with yourself, you know, get a notepad out, you know, get to tone the lights down and move and explore yourself. Use that to be a psychonaut, you know, yeah. really get excited about going deep. And what I've found with folks that actually take that advice, it's extremely helpful for a lot of people, not for everybody. You know, but but and and then to take it to the next level of actually utilizing it during a session, I haven't personally done that because I don't want people to think I'm too crazy. People already think I'm crazy. I don't. I'm not not like taking the ball out as we're working. But I absolutely advise a, a a. probably 50% of the people, maybe 40% of the people that I see to do that because they're in this rut. You know, so that, that self-observation is what we really need to do. And it's, and it's our biggest fear because you might come up with some stuff that you're uncomfortable with, you know, via, that's the bad trip, you know, but to... Put yeah. that underneath the bed for the rest of your life. It's just gonna smolder and sit there and mold and get gross. You know, to bring it out, expose it to the air. It's uncomfortable at first, but then it breathes and it moves on, and your system can circulate. And that's a little bit out there to talk about. But does that? I'm, I'm sure that makes sense to you. <laughs> oh, oh yeah,
1: yeah, completely, completely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. That's, that's and, and I, I would that. just make one sort of clarifying, sort of linguistic uh, conversation, which is that. The, the difficult stuff coming up it isn't what makes it a bad trip. Right. It's what makes it a difficult trip. And exactly. then it's the resistance to that right. that makes it a bad trip. Right. And so that's where what a lot of what we try to do at, at festivals, with our Zendo project, at other places where we're trying to uh, envision a post-prohibition world and say, how would we do harm reduction? Because people will inevitably deal with difficult stuff. I mean, we all carry trauma from... Just knowing that there's wars going on and people are being tortured and killed every second—that sure. the just the, the part of our mind that's connected to everybody else—that there's a lot of pain and suffering in, in the human species in the world right now, and we all appropriate part of that, and so we're all inevitably going to have difficult emotions and experiences come up if we're at all honest with ourselves, yeah. and how we deal with that is the real question, and so. We try to. One of our principles of the psychedelic harm reduction is difficult is not the same as bad. Absolutely. And that that's a key thing because because a lot of times people when they take drugs for fun, they think that anything difficult means that it's going to spiral downwards, and then they block it, and then that makes it even worse. That's it. Yeah. And then it gets locked in the body and locked in the psyche yes. in different yes. ways. So we just. I, so I just wanted to reframe that. You know that that uh, it, it's. Um, in many ways, it's progress when difficult stuff comes up to the surface.
0: I think in every way. You know, every, t- and e- every time that I've had a, a difficult experience, I just say bad for semantics, that's what people attach yeah. to. It's like, oh, bad trip, man. Yeah. You know, but every time that I've yeah. had a, a, a difficult experience, at the time it sucks. So does exercise. You know, so does climbing a mountain. So does dealing with a, a relationship or building a business. You know, it's yeah. that, that, those challenging aspects of your life, that's the work. That's the progress you know, but yeah. we, we've we attached to the difficult part, you know, it's like we, we, we it's like you look at the news, it's like Mexico, cartel, cut man head off, you know, we focus on that, there's so much more to it than that, you know, and so something I, I want to make sure that we get into with you is that people need to know about is is the utilization of MDMA with uh, PTSD and war vets yeah. and, and police officers and that, you know, one of the analogies that I've heard you mention before is that the creation or, or the reproduction of memories. You know, it's like our memory, we're, we're not just a library, we're pulling books off the shelf. We're literally rewriting the book every time we come up with a memory. So if you have habituated a memory of, oh my God, every time I hear a this sound, it means there's a gun going off, you're recreating that and you're, you're confusing yourself with a broken filter. So this MDMA is giving us an opportunity to develop new neural pathways, re again myelinate ourselves into a place of, oh, actually, when someone puts their hand up, they're not going to hit me; they actually want to give me a high five or give me a hug. You know, so can we, can you break down a little bit of what that, what that, how you're using that?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, let me just say first off that um, what what I realized in our current society, in the the war on drugs that we are outgrowing, but. Still, only slowly. Um, that the the pathway through seemed to me the path of least resistance was combining science with psychedelics with healing. I mean, we're we're a drug culture, you know, drugstores and pharmacists and uh, you know pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. So our our focus has been on primarily looking at. Um, ways in which we can scientifically study the beneficial uses of psychedelics in order to heal some uh, disorders that are socially acceptable, um, that that people have sympathy with. So when you mentioned the fact that we're talking about police officers even, I mean, that for me was a big breakthrough because I'm so used to being in opposition to the police and seeing them as, you know, the problem the DEA and you know that they want to squash what what I hold most precious and but to realize that the police have a job more than most any other job that exposes them to traumatic experiences and that they can get coarsened and roughened up to that and that they are not offered any support with that either so our our current study with uh, 24 veterans firefighters and police officers um, it really was just to be veterans I didn't think we'd get, but I thought for political means and for us to talk about, I'd say, okay, it's veterans, firefighters, and police officers. Um, and now, as it turned out, we've actually, of the 24 subjects, we've enrolled all of them, all the MDMA sessions are done, we're just gathering some follow-up data. Uh, 20 of the people were veterans. Three of them were firefighters, including one from 9-11 in New York, hmm. and the other was a police officer. We actually did have a police officer volunteer to be in the study. And I think it's tremendously exciting that we can try to help police officers work through their trauma. But awesome. so uh, that's in a way to say that to make a drug into a medicine, the FDA requires you to prove safety and efficacy, but you don't have to prove mechanism of action. And fortunately for us, because there's so much interest in MDMA, both by governments around the world to demonize it, to, to study its risks, but also by more and more people who heard about our work with MDMA for PTSD, they want to figure out how it works. So just yesterday, there was a paper that came out about MDMA in fear extinction in mice. And so what we're talking about nice. is all been in humans, but we're finding that in, in mice and rats and dogs, that MDMA can be really helpful in overcoming fear, overcoming trauma from a biological basis only without the added benefit of the psychotherapy. So what we see happening is that um, MDMA decreases activity in the amygdala, which is what we've discussed. It also increases activity in the hippocampus and in the frontal cortex. And that's where we put memories into storage and where we connect them, where we associate them with other things in our life. And so PTSD increases activity in the amygdala and reduces activity in the hippocampus and the frontal cortex. We don't think as clearly, we don't store memories as well, and we're hypervigilant and very frightened. And MDMA does the opposite. And at the same time, MDMA stimulates serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine in different degrees, and also the hormones of oxytocin and prolactin, which are the hormones of uh, nursing mothers, of orgasm as well. So I think a lot of times the way to understand the MDMA state is the post-orgasmic state and it's physiologically very similar. Right. With, uh, and, and when you think about it, you're not striving, you're, you're, you're there, you're peaceful. Um, that feels a lot like the MDMA state and the post-orgasmic state. Right. And the thing that we're trying to understand about memory, uh, and there's more of an interest now on our part to try to figure it out, because we, we learned something remarkable in our current study with the veterans, firefighters, and police officers which is that we were doing a dose response study where some of the group got 30 milligrams followed by 15 and a half, 15 milligrams after about two hours. Now these are, again, three and a half months therapy. There's weekly non-drug therapy and then once a month for three times there's a day long MDMA session. People spend the night in the clinic. They get integrative psychotherapy the next day. We call them on the phone every day for a week. Just to see how they're doing. Then they come back for weekly non drug psychotherapy for three to four weeks, then they get their next MDMA. So that's like a three and a half hour process, a three and a half month process. Mm-hmm. And one group got 30 milligrams during the MDMA sessions, another group got 75 milligrams, and then followed by 37 and a half. Uh, and these supplemental are optional, and the main reason is to prolong this plateau of openness. And then the other group got 125 milligrams, which is our normal therapeutic dose, followed by 62 and a half. And that's what most underground psychedelic therapists use. That's what we've used in our study, our other studies as our main therapy awesome. drug awesome. dose. But what shocked us is that the 75 milligram people did great. I didn't think they were going to do that great. Not only that, but they did on average even better than the 125. And that led us to figure out what is really going on. How could that be? Because there's a lot more feelings of pleasure, body rushes. There's more spiritual experiences at the higher doses. There's more um, periods where people are just so into the music that um, you know they're, they're just loving and opening. But at the 75 milligrams, there's less of that. And people are more grounded in a way. They're more talking just about their biography. It's They're more um, um, able to stay focused in a sense. So it could be that the, the theories of memory reconsolidation that we've been talking about, that, that once you have a memory, when you recreate the memory, when you store it again, if you're reconsolidating the memory of a fearful event when you're feeling peaceful, then you can actually store it away and you remember the content, but you don't get triggered by the fear. Yeah. And then you can learn from it and, as well. And, and then we see that memory is enhanced. So when the fear is muted, the memory from the events are flooding people. That, that they're Not that they're necessarily overwhelmed, but just the things that they have been suppressing because they were so painful come to the surface yeah. and we've had multiple people say I was in a firefight you know there was an explosion here and the next thing I remember you know I woke up at the hospital and then under MDMA they're like whoa look at all the stuff that happened now the memory comes back to them right which is a sign that they're really able to recover from the PTSD they don't have these unconscious fear-based memories plaguing them below their level of awareness now it's surfacing and they're feeling safe, and they can kind of separate that was then, and now that's not necessarily happening. So we're starting to really look at um, memory reconsolidation more. And one of the main alliances that I had in our work was with Dr. Richard Rockefeller, who was just a fantastic man. Um, David Rockefeller was uh, the oldest living. Rockefeller was his father. Um, He was the chairman of the Board of Advisors of Doctors Without Borders, And he saw whole populations being traumatized and wondered what to do about helping them. And so he helped us with the military, Hmm. trying to open the door with the Veterans Administration, the Department of Defense. But once he he died a little bit over a year, almost a year and a half ago in a tragic uh, plane crash. And his family, though, to honor him, have started research at Rockefeller University specifically into MDMA and memory reconsolidation in animals trying to understand the neural pathways. Great. And so that that is this new understanding of memory, and that may be why the medium mm-hmm. doses of MDMA um, work really effectively when we all thought that it was the higher doses. Now, other things happen with the higher doses. It changes your mood. You, you can have spiritual experiences that can help give you meaning, but it doesn't necessarily rewrite the memories from your trauma. Right, And that's what the goal of that more limited study is yeah
0: it's going beyond the smoldering repression and tapping into integration of my past my background my present moment my future you know like this is all me you know that you know my uncle that touched me when i was seven that's me you know, I don't need to forget it. You know, and that didn't happen to me, I don't think. You know, unless there's some repression, I love it. You know, but it's—I don't need to block it away and push. Your uncle's listening to this. Right. Damn you! You know, it's like I don't—I don't need to block that away and forget about it. I come to acceptance with it. You know, and one of the things that again, Ida Rolf quote is—you know—she would say, "Put the tissue or the joint where it belongs and call for movement." You know so similar concept with this where when you're going in to having this MDMA experience or psychedelic experience whatever what you're doing is you're what are we doing we're downregulating the amygdala oh a lot of people are really scared about rent their job their girlfriend yeah. their car the payments and this they're constantly in this fight flight mode if we can potentially blaze a new trail for five hours, you know, and talk about it and integrate it, you know, another thing is stress ends up uh, degenerating the hippocampus, you know, that's where we remember things, it's an emotional area of our brain, you know, that's like, if we can potentially open up that space for a time frame, so you can just touch it, just feel it. You know and, and be able to really integrate that new potential movement m- emotional psychological physical movement into your system maybe you can practice that and actually integrate it into your into yourself you know and that's why I think it's really fantastic that you it's such a small percentage of you know the actual uh, psychoactive aspects of what you do The biggest thing is the grounded sober therapy and then we lead yes. in to using the psychoactive supplements in order to go deeper and then integrate and then go deeper and then integrate yes. and that's okay. where psychedelic music festivals go wrong in my opinion is they just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper you know and then they're doing you know nitrous hits in, in the middle of the day yeah. it's like you're missing the you're missing the point man you know it's like you got the message from god and you're just hanging on the phone you know it's like you got it integrate it
1: yeah and what's amazing to me, one of the most amazing things of all is the speed at which people's psyche can heal. Yeah, That people have been, uh, like our first study was women survivors of childhood sexual abuse uh, and adult rape and assault almost entirely. And the people had post-traumatic stress disorder on an average of over 19 years. And sometimes within just one or two or th- sometimes three MDMA sessions, they're able to to start a whole new life, not burdened by the past in the way that they were before. Right. Sometimes it just happens in a moment. I mean, when you're feeling safe and you're able to um, look at what's frightening to you and work through it, sometimes just a few hours is enough. In fact, we had one subject who was in our study, of veteran, and he was uh, struggling with... Um, opiate pain meds because he'd been deeply wounded and injured in uh, Iraq and that under the influence of MDMA he recognized that he was telling himself this story that, that really he was doing the opiates more for um, escapism rather than for pain control mm-hmm. and that he didn't need right. them a- anymore That's it. and he decided that he didn't really need uh, drugs and he didn't even really need MDMA because he felt like he had looked at what was holding him back, and and now he was saying, okay, I'm ready to move forward into my life. And he said he wanted to drop out of the study and not even go to a second MDMA session. And we said, all right, that's fine, but will you just let us do the two-month and one-year follow-ups to see how you're doing? And he agreed to that. And at the two-month and one-year follow-ups, his PTSD was still gone. It just took one MDMA session, and then it turned out he had the 75 milligrams, which even further shocked us. So. I think for those people that may be listening that that do have a lot of these fears and anxieties, you know, a lot of the fear is that if you start addressing it, you, you'll never be done with it. It's going to be there with you always, and you know, it's better to just suppress it because once it's in your awareness, it's just going to stay there. And in a way, the opposite is true: that if you can bring it into your awareness with full emotional expression, with also integrated into your body as well, to, to look at where the sources of tension are in your body, that, that you can discharge those energies that people have been carrying sometimes for decades. We've actually worked with some Vietnam War vets with PTSD who have been stuck for 40, 50 years and who are still able to heal and make a new start in their lives. Oh. After all of that time, it, it's absolutely astonishing. Awesome, yeah,
0: and that's, you know, that's that's like, I have I went to Peru and I did, you know, ayahuasca ceremonies and I went out there and, and one of the things that I, I noticed with that is, is a similar setup as what you're talking about of, you know, taking time and we, it was a ceremony of what are we eating every day, what are our intentions every day, why are we here, what's the point of all this, and it all leads up to the final ceremony time, but it's a really small percentage of the whole thing, you know, an analogy that just kind of came yeah. to me as you're talking about that is like, it's, we need to clean our filter of Perception, you know, and so if you are squeegeeing your glass with MDMA or whatever it may be, once you get it clean, look out the glass, you know. If you keep on squeegeeing it, squeegeeing and it, squeegeeing, it, eventually you might break the glass, and that's what we see with people that are, oh, he was tripping way too hard for about you know x amount of time, and now he's a little funny. He's not really quite integrated with society because he went too deep. Now he's floating around in space, ungrounded. You know, and that's kind of the balance
1: with it. Exactly. And that that actually describes what my first uh, series of LSD experiences were like at, at new college when I was going to school, is that I kept trying to do all the work in this inner world, and I would be confronting these things that were very scary to me, and I was unable to let go. And each successive trip, I would sort of get stuck sooner and sooner into the trip. The pattern would repeat itself. And finally, I recognized that I wasn't thinking about the integration, right. that I wasn't putting what I learned into practice in little ways, and that I would—that you cannot rush it too fast either. That you can go a certain far, but then you have to strengthen and build in the the sober daily life, and that that's really the challenge. And I think that's also at, at some of the music festivals where people have the idea: I'm going to take these drugs, I'm going to have these experiences, and they're going to be great while they last. And that's what they're for. They're for like going to a movie or, or, you know, they're for something that's fun while it lasts, but that's it. And they don't understand about how the real value is taking that experience and then integrating it into your daily life so that more and more your daily life can be open to all of those uh, energies, the feelings from the inside, the feelings from, you know, your environment. That it was a sad thing for me to realize that I, I couldn't do it all by just doing ever higher doses of LSD or by doing more extreme. I did a three-week primal therapy intensive where I um, was isolated for three weeks. I'd only get out for like an hour a day in a soundproof padded room with a the therapist to scream. Wow. You know, I did all these extreme things. That, you know, I, we start building our own flotation tanks and doing LSD in these isolation environments. You know, but that the integration part is really what's necessary. And, and then I find, and this is something I think for... Um, many of your your listeners to realize that one of the things for me that's most exciting now is to see how the religion, science, and psychedelics are coming together in some ways. So what I mean by that is that there's a study in Switzerland right now, sponsored by a fellow named Vanya Palmers, who is one of the leaders of the Zen community in Switzerland. And what they're doing is they're taking people Um, who are lifelong Zen meditators. And many people got involved in Zen early in their lives through psychedelics and then said, okay, now we need to integrate it, and I'm going to use meditation as my tool to integrate it, and then I no longer need the psychedelics. And So I think that what we're seeing now is that lifelong meditators are starting to question whether there might not be sort of new insights that they can get from going back to the psychedelics, Mm. going back to their original source of inspiration. And so the study is people go to the University of Zurich, get brain scans, um, then they go to a a seven-day or so meditation retreat and they meditate every day in this sort of Zazen tradition, but then in the middle of it they get a pill. It's either placebo or psilocybin. And then they see the depth of the spiritual experience, how does it affect their meditation, how does it affect their uh, compassion, their altruism. And then, what does it happen? You know, months later, how does um, have people been able to integrate that so that they can? And people are reporting that they have been able to deepen their meditation practice. Yeah, that there is a way in which the psychedelics <clears throat> are really tools for a lifetime through different stages of life. You know, like at electronic jazz music festivals, mostly young people, and and we tend to think of psychedelics as part of this early you know, college age, sort of rite of passage, explore yourself, figure out what you wanna do. Uh, But I I think more and more that we're seeing that, um, and also in traditional cultures, that these are tools for a lifetime and we have different challenges at different stages of our lives. I think we're eventually gonna be able to uh, integrate them into our society. And one of the reasons I think is the baby boomers, this enormous group of people That at an early age were growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, that experienced, many of them experienced psychedelics. Many of them gave it up for jobs, for families because of social pressures. And now that they're retired and then thinking more about the end phase of their life, when people get closer to death, they start getting more spiritual. They start thinking more about those kind of questions. And so we're seeing now a return to psychedelics from a lot of older people. Right. who are finding that there's still value there for them. Right. And that, I think, in combination with the younger people who are really um, growing up after decades and decades of prohibition and, and the horrible violence that that's created and the, the basic violations of people's core human rights and spirituality, that, that these, um, it, it's sort of now this cultural bond. We're in the 60s. It was the young people against the old people. Right. And now it's kind of the young people and the old people forging this bond together, with a bunch of the people in the middle who kind of grew up under the worst systems of suppression and prohibition who didn't have a lot of these experiences, and so we kind of have to educate the middle.
0: Yeah,
1: I, I think it's it's very hopeful, and, and I think the uh, the kind of information that you're you know sharing with people through your podcast, the kind of healing work that you're doing, that that's preparing us, because the culture is facing massive crisis, massive extinction, massive environmental degradation, massive overpopulation and resource depletion, and we've got a lot of serious things going on with, you know, rise of fundamentalism in different places, you know, just watching some of these Republican uh, presidential debates is uh, inducing PTSD, and just seeing what they have to say, you know, so we've got massive crises. And and I think psychedelics are tools that in the appropriate relationship with them can be life-saving. I mean, I've had experiences with psychedelics that were, um, for me, uh, very pivotal in in giving me hope that the kind of um, separation that people feel um, from each other you know, that, that we identify ourselves in all these limited ways, you know, like I'm white or I'm Jewish or I'm male or I'm American or, uh, you know, I'm uh, heterosexual. There are all these different ways that we identify ourselves that give us group cohesion, and we need that, but it also makes us think, okay, well, there's people that are out of the group, that, that they're different from me, and I'm scared of them, and they're less than me and all of that. And I think that breaking that down uh, is done through this kind of um, spirituality, these, these experiences that for many people um, come more in um, psychedelics than in traditional religious contexts, And that, that's why we started out our conversation about how uh, I find it very helpful to smoke pot and go to temple for Yom Kippur. Absolutely. Be- because, you know, you, you hear the same stories over and over every year and with uh, marijuana. One, one time I actually worked with Rabbi Zalman Schachter. Who was um, recently died, but was um, someone who started the Jewish Renewal movement, and actually was able to take MDMA in Temple for Yom Kippur, nice. which is about atonement, about you know asking for forgiveness for your sins, and thinking about making up with other people, and so I, I found that for me this uh, blending of you know thousands of year old rituals with sort of a psychedelic consciousness. Um, can provide a, a lot more depth than, than I've been able to get out of them otherwise. And, and not to say that that's true for everybody, but uh, for those of us that feel like we need that help, um, I think it's okay. And then also the idea is that the help is temporary, that, that we are trying to integrate, and that's the real key through the body work and through the psychotherapy and, and through making amends to people and, and through directing our lives to what we really want to do. it. And so I think we're, we're at a tremendously exciting time of history and if people many people are kind of depressed about looking around but um, I think the the reasons for optimism are are incredible I think we we have fantastic opportunity to make a much more peaceful more beautiful loving world awesome
0: so there's several other really important concepts that I would love to get into but we're you know we're already 10 minutes past what we had had planned on (laughs) So maybe I I can like I don't know I don't know if people want to hear me talk about it but I'll talk I'll get into like the the, <laughs> the intro or something. Well,
1: do well, you want to just let, let's do it uh, very briefly because uh, well, do you want to just say a few of those things or maybe I could come back another time or. Maybe you
0: could come back another time. This yeah. really, just really, really quick analogy that I think people, everyone could maybe observe in themselves is recently. You know, I have a little MacBook Air computer that I, I do a lot of stuff off of, and I took it down to the Mac store, and I found out that I have all these back programs running at the same time. I was like, why is my computer running slow? It's a Mac. It's supposed to work fantastically, you know. And I'm running out of memory, and it's just like max maximum capacity. And what they did is they went in and they said, oh, did you realize that you're running 20 freaking nine programs right now? <laughs> you know, That's why your computer sucks. That's why you're slow. That's why you're frustrated as you have so much chatter going on yeah. in that system. You know, and I wanted to get into cannabinoids and and you know the utilization of supplements like that because what it does, I don't know what it does. But, you know, some things that I've heard is it's you know helpful with kind of deciphering the information that we actually want to hang on to. And we say that it's like, oh, it's bad for your memory. It's like, well, forgetting, letting go of information is actually crucially valuable for our you know our ability to sustain ourselves. If we remembered everything, we'd freak out. You know, and what we're doing in our society is we're constantly operating on all these background programs and we suck at everything we do because we're never able to completely integrate and drop in to what's happening at hand, that moment, that consciousness. With what? What are we doing right now? Eye contact. What project am I creating? You know, Francis Crick finding the DNA double helix. You know, or, uh, there's yeah, so much I, I, into that. Whether I, I he did or not, I don't. Whether that was...
1: Yes, yes, I think that's uh, questionable. Whether he actually did. I and, like to believe he uh, did, <laughs> but well, I could me way off. <laughs> I, mean, I I wish that were true, but I was just actually um, looking into it even yesterday. Yeah. Um. You know, because people were saying that, so th- there's really. Um, it, it came out after he died. Supposedly, a friend of his said that in 1953 he did low dose LSD when he had the vision of the double helix. Mm. And I said, you don't need to say that. It doesn't seem like it's. It's not likely to be true. But the talk about Kerry Mullis. Kerry Mullis is the one that won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, I think it was 1993, for the polymerase chain reaction. Right, right, right. And he attributes his creativity to marijuana and LSD. Right. And and he says that, and he's alive now to confirm it, and he's written about it in his books. And so I I think this connection between, um, you know, psychedelics and insights and creativity and, you know, Steve Jobs talked about how important psychedelics were for him. So... I think the, um, the idea of all these background programs, for me, that was the most clear in the Ibogaine experience that we started talking about earlier in this discussion, because it was about, for me, separating self-criticism from self-hatred and realizing that, that these programs of uh, insecurity or inferiority or self-critical, that they're running all the time. And, and, they're, and when they're linked to this punitive, you're not perfect, therefore you're bad, it was super painful and, and that was like 10 12 hours of just sort of confronting that and after that was over I felt like I had more space in my head yeah. to be present yeah. because all these internal negative programs weren't occupying as much of my computing power right. as they had before so that that's that's a really good metaphor for how it is that doing body work doing psychedelic therapy doing regular therapy, can, can take you out of these internal systems into the present. Yeah, and that gets into the, the very
0: last thing, time, <laughs> time perception in, in relation to caminoids. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, it slows down time. How interesting. You know, could that have yeah. something to do with the fact that we're unamused with this miracle that's happening, which is like just walking around and breathing, you know, getting on your computer, driving your car, getting on an airplane. It's freaking incredible. You know, and yeah. we just accept as like, yeah, whatever. I'm bored. You know, it's uh, it's like well,
1: then you well, that, s- yes go, the,
0: you, the, you and I
1: are talking right now across the whole North American continent, right? And seeing each other. Well, <laughs> you know, if if our um, great grandparents were to wake up, they, they would be shocked, right? Yeah,
0: and so so with the with the time perception thing, what it does is it slows down your perception because you're more amused with the the miracle that's in front of you. So, artist, you're drawing a picture, you're making a sound, play your guitar, play your drums, smoke a little bit of weed and see what happens. Go dance. You know, see what happens. Feel the integration of the movement down into your toes, up into your fingertips. You know, have sacks. What is that? You know, when you can slow time down and really get absorbed in that moment, you literally are living a longer amount of time. I think, like a fruit fly that lives eight days or whatever, his eight days probably feel like a human lifetime because that's all he gets. You know, so your perception of time—if you can slow that down and just get amused—you live to be uh, whatever. It, it'll probably feel like you lived a thousand years.
1: Is my yeah. thought? Yes, that's. The, I think there's a lot to that, and then I think the other side, just to again help uh, to talk about people with difficult experiences, is that that sometimes that sense that the time is going to expand forever. That's right. that's one of the the most fearful kind of things when people are trapped in these. You know, scary thoughts. The feeling is this is going to be forever right, and that right, it will right. never end. Right. And that time is somehow frozen and I'm trapped in this hellish place. And one other thing that Stan has said is that the full expression of an emotion is the extinguishing of that emotion because hmm. everything grows and changes. So that when people are in psychedelic states and it seems like you're stuck and it's going to stay there forever, the the challenge is to accept that and to let that be and to recognize that in some ways there's always this level of pain and fear, but it's not all that's there. And if you can sort of sink into accepting that, then actually that's the quickest way for... It to grow and evolve into yet something else.
0: Awesome,
1: and, and it's not that it's gone away. I mean, I think that's the other part. When we talk about trying to get rid of bad emotions or difficult emotions or fears, it's it's like they're always there. They're always a possibility. It's just that they're not all that there is. So, one of the times I was working with a woman who was dying of cancer, and she had um, uh, under the influence of an LSD MDMA marijuana combination. And she uh, started uh, dividing her life, her body, into like quadrants, like a checkerboard. Oh. And she recognized, she had colon cancer, that, that there was um, these squares there that were incredibly painful. But that right next to them was healthy tissue. And she said she forgot how good the rest of her body had felt. Yeah. And so it's not that the pain went away. It just was part of a bigger system. And that permitted her to have a lot more space in her mind and in her emotions to, to live more fully the time she still had left. Right.
0: And then that feeds momentum into the wave of positivity, which could potentially engulf the negative bullshit that's happening. We get so focused on the resistance and the little, you know, the little stuff, but really, we have a tidal wave of fantastic stuff happening. We just need to give it more power. So I would love to talk to you again, man. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> um, this is great. Yeah.
0: Uh, okay but uh yeah how do people find you how do people learn more i think it's so important that people get into this stuff and let go of all the taboo bullshit that you think you know step back get
1: into what's happening right now and and and
0: explore
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay all right so people reach me at uh, maps.org yeah and they can send in questions ask maps at maps.org and we are a nonprofit organization. We're a nonprofit pharmaceutical company trying to develop psychedelics and marijuana into prescription medicines. We have several thousand members. Uh, we would like several thousand more members. so uh, people could go to the website. we publish a lot of books. Uh, we publish uh, bulletins uh, hardcover uh, hard copy bulletins three times a year that we mail for people that give around forty dollars or more per year so, I'd like to encourage people to, there's a wealth of information on the MAPS website, but also to think that cultural change and growth is possible, and it's underway. Um, Today, I just learned that we were rejected for a grant application from um, the Wellcome Trust. We were asking for money for an MDMA study with veterans in the United Kingdom with PTSD, and they would get fMRI scans to see exactly what happens with PTSD patients under the influence of MDMA. So the Wellcome Trust is the largest foundation in England. It's got 30 billion dollars worth of assets, and it's focused on neuroscience. And they said no. So we're we're still at this place where culturally, you know, we're not getting support from the mainstream, but it's getting closer and closer and closer. So till we get there, if anybody wants to um, support MAPS uh, for tax deductible donations, we we'd greatly. Appreciate
0: it. Awesome man. I'd I'd I, love to get involved personally. I um great. Let's uh, let's talk more after or whatever. We'll yeah. stay in contact and thank you so much, man. I really
1: appreciate your time. Sure. But sure. sure. Thank you for getting helping us get the word out.